Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 14 as we continue our uh, worship of the Lord this morning uh, through this hearing of his word. We're actually continuing the message that we began last week uh, and that we want to finish this week uh, by the grace of God. Acts 14, verses 19 through 23. Read the scriptures, uh, Acts 14, 19, 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let's pray together again. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that your word would be proclaimed clearly this morning. May your spirit cause your word to go forth and accomplish that which you intended to do in the hearts of your people. Father, we pray for softened hearts. We pray that your spirit would would prepare our hearts to hear your word, to to once again uh, study uh, our purpose as a church to make disciples. Father, that we would examine each of, our, each of our own lives and to see how we may uh, improve and do better in making of disciples. And Father, that you would enable us to do just that. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that as we do so, we not only do so, uh, that it would be uh, a, a blessing to our, in, our, in our own individual lives as we obey your word, but that you would use it to build and further your church, your kingdom, that the name of Jesus Christ might be made known. And, Father, we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Last week we began a series, and which we were continuing today. Uh, and, in fact, we're going through the whole month, a series that we call Church 101, just like when you take uh, Psych 101, History 101, Anthropology 101 in, at the university or at college, uh, this Church 101 is meant to be an introduction to the basic principles or the essential basic principles about church. These are essential basic principles because when they are understood and when they are applied, they result in allowing the church to operate, to function as it is intended, and to do so efficiently and in a way that glorifies the Lord. Uh, it's part of our, and this is all review because we covered this last week, so I'm just kind of go through some of these quickly. We looked at some of the questions that we want to answer this month. Questions like, what is the church's mission or purpose? How does the church go about fulfilling its purpose? What makes the church effective in fulfilling that purpose? And then what does this look like practically? Our objective for the, kind of this month is to not only understand and know the answers to these basic elementary questions, uh, they're basic for the, the nature of the church, we would, that if I asked you the question, what's the purpose of the church, you would be able to give me the answer. And I won't ask you yet, but I'll ask you in a little bit. Uh, there'll be a quiz at the end of the quarter, at the end of the month, I like to say. But anyways, but more importantly, knowing the answers is applying the answers, right? In theory by itself, knowledge by itself is no use unless it's applied. We understand that. We want to, we want to live out God's truth. We want to know how it affects each of our lives individually, but also our life as a church body. And so we emphasize this, how we might apply this knowledge to each of our lives as members of this church. So we began last week considering this subject, which we'll complete today. What is the church's mission or purpose? What, what's God called us to do as a church, right? Why do we come here? Is it just to, you know, sing songs? Is it to kind of just get to know and see how each other's doing? Is it uh, something, you know, or is it to, to give money? Or what is it that we do? Why do we exist as a church? Why do we gather together? What's our purpose that Christ would put people together as a local church? And there are many local churches all around the world. But why do people get together as individual churches. Why doesn't just everybody just do whatever they do as Christians in their own homes, for instance, right? If, if there's a, so there seems to be a purpose for a church, in which we answered. 
the answer was found, of course, in the Great Commission. We looked at Matthew, well, we've looked in previous times, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, about Jesus' Great Commission, about going, therefore, into all the world and making disciples of all the nations. And so our answer to the question of what is the church's mission or purpose, then, is disciple-making. Sometimes we say making disciples. In fact, uh, the Great Commission translates as, or the NAS translates as making disciples. I kind of like disciple making, though I'll use, we can use both interchangeably, it's okay. It's just because the word disciple comes first, and that's really the aim. That's what's important here. It's not the making, but what is the result? The aim is that we, the goal is that we have disciples, that we produce disciples. It could be translated producing disciples. It could be resulting disciples, uh, that we're uh, growing disciples. The point is not what we're making, growing, or, but the point is that the product is disciples, disciples of Jesus Christ. That's, our, that's the answer. So we, uh, what is the church's mission and purpose? When I ask that on the quiz, you will say disciple-making. Great. Oh, good. Uh, nice. We began looking at Acts 14 last week as well. And so, again, this is all review, uh, but at the map, I made it look a lot clearer now. So now it's beautiful. I can see it. I love having <laughs> it's uh, just kind of sharp. Uh, the trick is sharpening, sharpening, I've learned. Okay, context of Acts 14, 19 to 23 is it's found in Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, and in Paul's first missionary journey, he traveled from, if you notice on the map, the far right, he traveled from what's called a Syrian Antioch, Syrian Antioch. There's actually two Antiochs. There's another Antioch that's kind of on the uh, top left of the map, and that's Pisidian Antioch. But Paul travels from, sent out by the church in Syrian Antioch. He goes to Cyprus. He crosses the Mediterranean Sea and arrives at Perga, goes to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and then to Derby. And you may notice on the map he then backtracks and goes through all those, essentially kind of follows through, goes through those same cities before returning to Antioch. <clears throat> As Paul went on his missionary journey, what's significant is that he faced opposition. When he preached the gospel, he faced opposition. People were opposed to this message. It was not just from the Jews, some, though it was sometimes from the Jews, but it was from Jews and as well sometimes Gentiles. But he faced opposition, and whenever he faced opposition, though, it never deterred him in his mission. Each and every time, Paul would continue to be committed to fulfilling his task. In fact, it's significant that he returns to Lystra, to Iconium, to Pisidian Antioch in his missionary journey. You know, if he wanted to go home to Syrian Antioch, which he eventually does, he could have taken the shortcut, right? He could have gone to Tarsus. That's his hometown. It's like, you know, hey, on the way, you know, to... Uh, to, your, to uh, San Francisco, you know, you know, you say you're in Alaska or something like that, you can, I would go to Seattle, drop by Seattle, because that's on the way. It's my hometown. Why would I go to, let's say, maybe around to China or Asia, then go to Hawaii, and then, well, Hawaii's not bad, and then come back uh, from Hawaii to San Francisco? That makes no sense unless there's a purpose to it. And, of course, we're going to find out that there is a purpose to Paul's missionary journey, why he goes back to these places, which we look at. But the important part is that we see that for Paul, his mission his purpose was so important that he would go back into these same towns where he faced opposition. His purpose, of course, we call it a missionary journeys, but his purpose is not just to be a missionary. His purpose was to make disciples. Paul's purpose was to make disciples. His mission was to make disciples, uh, as, we will, as we see, uh, not only what he does here in Acts 14, but throughout the book of Acts, and even as we read in his letters to the churches. And so we kind of summarize this passage as four activities. We look at Paul's mission ministry in four activities. We divide it in four. They remind us of the priority of disciple-making. We looked at two of them last week. We'll look at two more today. But I want to kind of review the first two because they're, they're important. They are essential to this, uh, this ministry of disciple-making. So a quick review. Point number one that we looked at was that Paul's mission ministry involved preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. That's very clear from this text, right? Verse 20, 21, after they hit, preach the gospel to that city. Paul preached the gospel. He evangelized, is what we say. To evangelize, to preach the gospel, is to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. To tell others about how the Son of God took on human form, flesh, and he came and died on the cross for our sins so that, and rose from the grave to, so that whoever believes in him Whoever puts their faith in him, all who repent will not only be, will be delivered from the judgment of sin, but have eternal life 
because we have a restored relationship with God. Essential, and we learned last week that an essential part or essential part of making disciples is this preaching of the gospel. I hope we make that clear. It's not just uh, for uh, it's not just for missionaries, but it's for everyone in the church, and it's for the church as a whole as well. And we talk about even some practical ways of how we do that as a church. In practice, as a church, God has given to us some who are gifted evangelists, and we appreciate God is uh, Acts four eleven. Uh, God has given to the church, you know, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. So he's given us gifted evangelists. And that's, it makes sense for us to partner alongside. When we go out as a group to lunch, you, wanna, you have a friend you want to reach with the gospel, invite some of your evangelistic gifted friends, you know. And bring them along because they will sometimes be able to maybe uh, conv- uh, open up uh, a conversation about the gospel uh, much easier than we might. They might be able to explain part of some gospel truth. It might be a little clearer than we might or, or just even the fact that they are, they'll be there just to be a support and encouragement to us as we strive to reach our friends and family with the gospel. We want to move, involve, and integrate and use the gift evangelists among us. But nevertheless, we're all called to evangelize. We're all given this great commission. We just learned, uh, came out of Sunday school class this, uh, in our church spiritual disciplines class, and was, we learned about the discipline, the spiritual discipline of evangelizing. Of that we all have this response. We each have the responsibility to reach the people that God puts in our lives, or the people wherever we go. God has given us that kind of responsibility, uh, that uh, that that calling. And we are not just to just wait for the opportunities, uh, but to even pray for opportunities and try to put ourselves in places to have opportunities for the reach for the so that we may share the gospel with others. As a result of the preaching of the gospel, Paul then. Uh, we see his second activity, and that is the making of disciples. Uh, we read how after they preached the gospel, they had made many disciples. Now, looking at this verse alone, one might assume wrongly that preaching the gospel is the same as making disciples, but it is not. It's important for us to understand rightly, then, what it means to make disciples. And we spent a good amount of time last week talking about this, and I, it's important. It is important. So it's if we're going to make disciples, and disciples is the goal, we must understand what are disciples. What's a disciple? And a disciple is a learner, a student, a follower in general. So to make disciples is to make a student or followers of Jesus Christ. That is Christians. We learn this very important formula, kind of, uh, or a biblical formula, we might say, that in the Scriptures, a disciple equals a Christian equals a follower of Christ. And it's important to understand this. Uh, we might sometimes... Because if we don't understand this basic formula, we misunderstand it. We kind of put greater than or less than signs here in, in place of those equals. Then we, it affects how we conduct ourselves as a church. We looked at two common errors, two common errors when it comes to this understanding. One is believing that a disciple is more devoted, uh, a more devoted class of Christian. And uh, definitely if you missed last week, I want you to go back and listen to this section and try to uh, understand how is these common errors can actually lead to a, a, an ineffectiveness in the making of disciples. But there's a second common error that we looked at, too, is that believing that a disciple is simply a person who has believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, uh, that is, a Christian is just someone who simply believes in Christ. And that is what Christians are. Christians are believers in Christ. We say that. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And that is true. Uh, <clears throat> but we also want to emphasize that Jesus calls us to follow him, to follow after him. To, we call, there's a call to confess him as Lord, Master. So it implies certain things. It implies a, a following him, an obedience to him. He, he tells disciples, make disciples and teach them to believe. No, teach them to observe, keep all that I commanded you. So there's a, there's a sense that this is, uh, we, can, we have to understand the disciple is not just a, just a believer in Christ. You know, to make belief alone something simple. It's an oversimplification of what a Christian is. But it's a follower of Christ, a follower of Christ. Making disciples is about making followers of Christ. And so, therefore, it involves both evangelism, the preaching of the gospel, but it also involves edification. This word edification, if it's, you're kind of new to the church, it means to, to build up. It means to build up. That we're not just to lead people to Christ, but we build them up as Christians. We want to build them up in their faith. We want to strengthen them, uh, disciple them, sometimes we say. 
See, making disciples does not end when a person professes faith of Christ. Uh, sometimes the uh, thinking that a disciple, particularly a common error number two, is that the important thing is that the important thing is that a disciple is just simply someone a believer. Then it it can make our process, our work, we focus on on simply just emphasizing profession of faith in Christ, and that that is the end goal. That's the result. That's that's what we want to aim for. But God doesn't. Jesus doesn't want us to aim for just calling someone to believe in Christ. That's that is the goal of evangelism. But the goal of making disciples is that we make people who are followers of Christ. That is, our work is not done until we are able to present each person complete or mature in Christ. The goal of disciple-making is Christ-likeness. That's our end goal. That's our aim. That's what we aim for as a church, for every believer in this church, for ourselves. But that would be our desire even for the world that we are called to reach with the gospel. Not just that they would get saved, though, yes, we want them to get saved. But we really want them to become conformed in the image of Christ. That's our goal. That's our aim. And so we looked at this last week. Uh, During Paul's first mission journey, it's completely understandable that as we look at Paul's ministry or even think about Paul's ministry, that he would focus mostly on, most of his time, on evangelism, right? There was no churches at that time. He was going through Asia Minor, traveling through the Galatian region as well. There are no Christians there. I mean, he's the first apostle to to head out into these areas. So he spends, we would expect him to spend a lot of his time on evangelism. And we hear him doing that. Each time he goes to a new town, new city, he preaches the gospel. He evangelizes. But as Paul's ministry continues, and this is kind of surprising when I, as I started seeing this, I said, wow. As his ministry continues, he begins to give himself to the work of edification as well. See, for Paul, his goal is not just believers in Christ, if we might use that as a simple term, but followers of Christ. Now, you know, believers of Christ is good, trust me. But, you know, he's not just saying, my work is not just evangelism. My work is making disciples. His ministry continues. And you notice this third activity, and this leads us to the third activity of Paul's ministry, is that he not just evangelizes, he's made disciples, but he goes and strengthens disciples. He strengthens us. They, and we'll pick, pick up in verse 21. They return, he and Barnabas return to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch. Here we're getting back to why does he return to those cities? Why doesn't he just go straight back to Syria and Antioch? Is it does he want to evangelize more there? Does he want to preach the gospel there more? Uh, no doubt he probably did. He's, you know, like the gift evangelist that he was. I'm sure he seized every opportunity to share the gospel. But Luke doesn't record that. What does Luke say? Luke verse 22. He returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Through many dis- tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul knew that though he had preached the gospel in those cities and he had, innocent, had in a sense, made disciples and by leading to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but that was only part of his work. His work was not done. He knew that there was still a work that needed to be done as a disciple maker. If it was purely to evangelize, he should have went home. But he goes back because he knew that edification was necessary for these believers. He needed to go back and strengthen them, encourage them to continue in their faith. He had preached the gospel and led many to faith in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he returned not to preach the gospel again, though I'm sure he did. But his, as recorded in the scriptures, he returned instead to strengthen the souls of the disciples. See, Paul's mission was to make disciples, which began with preaching the gospel. It always begins with preaching the gospel. It, it always does. It, it must begin with that because it begins with saving faith in Jesus Christ. But it continues. Making disciples continues with strengthening of disciples. This verb, strengthening, that... Uh, Luke uses here in verse 22, is found only four times in the New Testament. It's kind of an interesting word. It's, a, it's four times, and Luke uses them all here in the book of Acts. It means basically to cause someone to become stronger, and yeah, that's what strengthen means, but, but not in the sense of physical strength, but it causes someone to become stronger in the sense of a more firm and unchanging strength in attitude or belief. 
So it's a strength of becoming more firm or unchanging in one's thought, in one's attitude, in one's uh, beliefs, in one's commitment. It's an internal strength. It's not just a physical strength. I believe Luke was when he used this word because it's interesting that no other, no other New Testament writer uses this word. Instead, they use the root verb of this. And I think he was, uh, Luke is probably thinking about Jesus' use of this word because Luke uses the root verb when he writes about Jesus in Luke 22, verse 32. When he, there in Luke 22, 32, there's a story about how it was, Jesus was uh, about to be arrested and about to be um, uh, tried and then crucified. He told Simon, Peter, that Satan had demanded to sift him like wheat. Right? You remember that story? They say because basically Peter was about to be tested. He was about to be tested uh, in his faith where basically he would end up denying Christ three times. But there Jesus said, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that's the the root verb of of this one that we find here in verse 22. It's kind of interesting that for Simon Peter, Jesus knew that his faith would be tested, particularly in this case by Satan himself. It would be tested so much that it would, actually, it would actually waver. It would actually result in him denying three times that he knew Christ. I don't know Christ. I'm not a Christian. I have nothing to do with that man. And then cursing, swearing an oath, you know. Say, you know, may God judge me if I actually know Christ. He failed in the miserable way. I mean, um, but in a sense, we might think understandable because he was afraid for his life. But Jesus said to him, when once you have turned again, your faith is going to waver, Peter. And once you've wavered, when you return, when you repent and come back, just as your faith is strengthened, I want you to strengthen your brothers. This is kind of just profound. That, and, he, and Luke has that, remembers this, this, uh, this word, and he uses that word, here, of strengthening disciples. He, uh, of Paul strengthening the souls of the disciples. See, in this world, and it's, it's a general truth of the world, is that this world, there's, in this world, you will have trouble. There are trials and tribulations. We know that the world, the flesh, our own flesh, that is, the enemy himself and his minions put to test the faith of many a believer. Uh, one of my very, very memory verses that I've been uh, kind of just trying to memorize reading was First uh, Peter five eight. <laughs> be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Is that fact that this world is a world that continues has many uh, sources of which can weaken and test and cause our faith to waver. Whether it's illness, whether it's sin, temptations, other circumstances, loss of job, disobedience, or marital or other relational difficulties, the circumstances of this world cause our faith to waver. I remember even as a young believer, I, th- I just thought that, you know, once I became a Christian, I would have the, you know, a wonderful kind of, it's, it's a wonderful, you know, wonderful life, you know, that it would just be joyful and happy and I would never sin again. And, uh, you know, I just thought, I kind of naively, I thought that that's what it would be. Like, because I would know Jesus and I would see my sins would be forgiven. But then, of course, uh, inevitably, I, I'd sin, I'd fall into sin, and I, then I wonder, my, man, I'm, my faith would waver. I, I, am I really Christian? I don't know. Maybe, not, maybe I better pray the prayer just in case again. And uh, please tell me if that's just, was that, was that just me? Okay. Because <laughs> I think that's, a, that's a, not an uncommon experience, okay? When we don't understand, when we kind of think that once you believe in Christ, that it's going to be a wonderful life. And we know it's supposed to be a better life. But knowing Christ does not mean that we don't sin anymore. It doesn't mean we don't have trials anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't have tribulations anymore. In fact, there's a, 
I think it's a, there's a greater wrestling in our hearts as we re- wrestle with the flesh and, and the spirit in our lives. And so these situations where the flesh, enemy, the world cause us to waver and weaken our faith, there needs to be a constant need of a strengthening of our faith, a strengthening uh, of disciples. This has to happen. And for these new, ch- these new uh, churches that Paul had started in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, they were all new believers. And it was very likely that just as Paul had faced opposition, they were facing opposition from the same opponents. They were probably wondering why they were facing trials and tribulations. And so Paul returns to these churches to encourage them, as it says in Scripture, to encouraging them to continue in the faith. Don't give up on this faith. Yes, there are trials. And he tells them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So if you're a Christian and uh, you don't re- haven't realized this yet, there will be many tribulations <laughs> before you get to heaven. Don't be surprised by them. Don't be wondering, saying, why God? This is, what it, this is part of life in a fallen world. Is God not in control? Yes, he is in control. And while Satan may be the source of temptation, the world may be the source of temptation, our flesh is the source of temptation, God in his sovereignty and his providence allows these temptations or trials, we might say, to strengthen our faith, to prove our faith. And we see Paul's, that this was, and this was a very important part of Paul's ministry, the strengthening of disciples. He makes it a very important part. It's a pattern, in fact, of his ministry. Not only do we see it represented here in the Galatian church. He preaches the gospel to them in Acts, of, in Acts 14, and then he spends more time strengthening them, strengthening the disciples. He would do this not just on this first time, but for these Galatian churches, he would do so again on a second missionary journey. In Acts 16, for instance, Paul returns to Lystra and Derbe. And then after his ministry there, we see in verse 5 of Acts 16, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Then on Paul's third missionary journey, in Acts 18, verse 23, we read that uh, Paul had left and passed left uh, Antioch and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. It's very significant when he returns to these areas. Paul do, or Luke does not record that he is evangelizing, and I, and I trust me, I believe that Paul was. You know, he he was an evangelist. He's going to be as opportunities arose, he would do that. But it's significant that the scriptures record for us that as he returns to these churches. These areas, he strengthens them. He strengthens them. It's, it's mentioned three times for the Galatian churches because it is a very important, essential element of making disciples. You cannot l- neglect the strengthening or the, what we call the edification of believers as part of the Great Commission. It's that teaching others to observe or to keep all that Christ commands you. Furthermore, this Paul, Paul's pattern was not just limited to the Galatian churches. Uh, one other passage that Paul used, that Luke, uh, that Luke uses the word strengthen is found in Acts 15, verse 41, where Luke tells us that uh, Paul was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, also strengthening the churches that were there. It's an important part to, of disciple-making is not just evangelism, but also edification. They go hand in hand. You know, the strengthening of believers is so essential. Because on our own, we grow weak. You take any Christian, take any Christian, okay, the strongest Christian you can find, okay, take them and put them by themselves for a little while. I've talked to many, some of you guys go travel for a little bit. You're out, you have to go somewhere to uh, another country, and you, you're removed from your church setting or Christian support group, support. And you give enough time, most often, more often than not, I hear people say, Man, my, I was struggling in my faith. I was struggling in my faith. It's kind of like the illustration of you take a little hot coal, you know, and part of a little fire. Together, they all stay warm. But you take that little piece of coal and you put it by itself, 
it will die much quicker. It will grow, this flame will grow cold real quickly. And that's what happens when we, uh, when we as believers are by ourselves. We need this church to, to be part of a church so that we might be strengthened in our faith, this disciple-making. I've learned this even as a personal illustration from my, from my own life. Recently, many of you know, I've been having back problems. Um, and uh, thank God for uh, a PT uh, that God's brought to my life. who have been just kind of showing me, reminding me that the fact is, as we get older, our, you know, our bodies weaken. <laughs> our bodies weaken. You know, after, I'll say, 30 or so, my body only got weaker. You know, because I was not doing anything to strengthen it, right? I was not bench pressing or doing all the stuff that those of you who are smart are going to do, running. I was just not doing it. And if you don't do anything with your body after 30, basically we grow weaker, right? Generally we go weaker, you know. You, and that's what happened to me. And I realized that basically my, why I'm having back pains is because I wasn't strengthening my body. I was not strengthening other parts of my body that are usually support that particular area of my back that was hurting because my other muscles were not strengthened to support the whole, this whole section together. I learned that I need to exercise. I need to discipline myself to exercise so that I might strengthen, stretch out those muscles and those joints and ligaments so that the body might work stronger. That's a picture of believer's faith. Uh, we need the church for strengthening. You say, well, I can strengthen myself. I'll just read the Bible by myself. I'll pray by myself. I'll do all the Christian disciplines by myself. And yes, that can go far. We talk about that we practice the Christian disciplines for the purpose of godliness. We understand that. But there is a reason why Christ uh, puts us together in the church, because together God has used us with our different giftedness to strengthen one another, to make disciples of one another. We need the church we need the church. How do we do this then? Let's get some practically. How do we make, strengthen one another? Well, we do this primarily through speaking the truth. That's how we do it. We speak the truth in one another's lives. Sometimes when I'm going through a trial, someone needs to speak the truth into my life. As a new, um, as a new dad, I've been hearing a lot of you know, counsel from other dads, a lot of dads, or other sometimes uh, um, you know, people just come and tell me things. And, uh, you know, I'm not too proud to hear it because I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, the fact is, I want to hear because I figure if you tell me that, it's something you've learned from your life as a father. You've learned from your mistakes. And that we best learn from our mistakes. I want to learn. I want to hear from anybody. You know, God, you know I, sometimes I cringe at advice. Oh, I'm not going to do that. No, no rum for my kid while they're teething. <laughs> uh, you know, I just heard this morning. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> We, we need, uh, there is speaking the truth. And then sometimes encouragement to continue in the faith, to, to grow. Uh, we, we do that for one another. It goes back and forth. Notice even in the text, that's how Paul encourages the believers. He gives them apostolic truth. He tells them through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He tells them biblical truth, and even uh, truth that Jesus would have taught, that, that in this world you, you know, you'll have trouble, that there's, there's trouble in this world, there's, that there will be, uh, even as they had treated Christ, so they will treat his disciples. But there are other ways, because this body is not, we're not all filled with just that we all should speak truth, but we're all different gifts in this body, and we strengthen one another through our gifts. Some of you are... Uh, some of you are people of strong faith, uh, faith, prayerful, prayer warriors, I think of you. When you offer prayer for one another, you build one another up through accountability. Sometimes we, we uh, uh, or encouragement, we might say, is another way of saying that accountability. Just through having, asking someone to hold you accountable to walking in a certain, to your, your walk with the Lord or, or your relation with your family or your spouse or, or, or girlfriend, boyfriend. We build one another through acts of mercy, through this, recently, we've had great examples of this through our meals ministry. That's an act of mercy when we provide a meal for someone. Uh, it just shows compassion and encourages them, builds them up, strengthens them at a time generally when uh, they are really, uh, they're, they are weak. They're, they're, uh, they're, they need help. Uh, sometimes it's offering the gift of helps. People just like helping, helping out with different things. Uh, I just remember even uh, when I recently, not only recently have I moved, but when I first arrived at this church, in fact, I showed up, we, Cindy and I drove up in our 
U-Haul truck, and we got to our apartment. There were like 20-some guys there, all willing to risk their lives, basically, to load all our stuff into this, our second-floor apartment, you know, and, and they really did risk their lives because they were carrying our, they carried our piano up the stairs. You know, and they really crushed some of them. I felt sorry for them. Uh, they cried. They died. I was like, no, can we just, anyways. Um, but the gift of helps, you know, building up, encouraging the body. Sometimes we need help. Some of you guys, we just need help. Widows need help. The people who are helpless in the church need help. And some of us, just because we're of our strength, ability, uh, skills, gifts, talents, whatever, but we come alongside. Why? And I say, well, that's not spiritual. Well, that's just a physical thing. But don't you see it? Sometimes it's in those moments of help, in those physical need, that our faith gets challenged, right? We say, oh, no, here I am. Nobody's here to help me move. I, here I am. I just had surgery. I can't even get out of bed to go to the toilet. There's nobody here to help me. I just lost a loved one. I feel lost. I don't know what to do. Nobody's, no, no one's talking to me. Some of these small physical things are just huge ways to strengthen someone's faith because in those moments of need is a great test of faith. It weakens our faith. But we strengthen through the gifts that God gives us. That's why we need the body. We need the body. And when we're strong, we can help those who are weak, for those who are going through trials. And when we're the ones weak, we, that's when we need the church. A lot of times when we're weak, when we're hurting, what do we do? We, we all crawl into a hole, right? We, we just go in, you know, we hide. I understand that. I, I want to hide too, generally, when, I, when I'm hurting. We don't want to let people see that I'm hurting. But that's when we need the church. Yeah, you know, it was, but it, you don't understand, Pastor Henry. It's the church that was hurting me. I understand that too. I understand that too. Sometimes maybe it is the church. But I trust it's not the whole church. I trust that you can have relationships with believers, people you can trust, that can encourage you as you go through trials. This is all just practical stuff. It's, you know, different ways that we might build, strengthen one another in the church. Uh, but part of the making disciples is not just evangelizing the lost. That's a huge part of this initial part, but it's also strengthening. That's what Paul does. He goes back, he strengthens the disciples through the midst of tribulation, through the midst of trials, the trials that they face, particularly because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Making disciples involves both evangelism and edification. Or as the Great Commission puts it, the baptizing and the teaching together. It's the Great Commission. And Paul's ministry involves evangelizing and strengthening. But Paul does one more activity that we'll look at, we find here in verse 23. In his ministry, as a, his mission ministry, that really isn't mentioned in the Great Commission. It's not specific. But I believe, and as I thought about it, it is a necessary corollary of disciple-making. It's involved. It's essential. It's the result of making disciples, that eventually this must happen. And that is appointing leaders. Appointing leaders. That is appointing those others who will be, who will lead the church in making disciples. These will be the lead people, example, people who will lead the way in making disciples. We read in verse 23 these words. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Paul and Barnabas didn't just make disciples or lead people to Christ and make disciples of them and, and just leave them on their own. They knew, disciples, the apostles knew that the disciples needed shepherd leaders who would continue the work of disciple-making that was begun by Paul. Last month, I had the opportunity to speak at Pastor Sen Wong's uh, memorial service. And many things that uh, could have been said about his life and ministry. I think one thing that most people say about Pastor Sen's life and ministry was that he was a great evangelist. He had a vision, uh, a drive, uh, you know, a giftedness to that he would, his work in ministry was to always share the gospel. His heart was to share the gospel, to plant churches. And he did that. And one, that's certainly to his credit, to, to the praise of the glory of God. But as I reflected, and I had the opportunity to just reflect upon my brief time with him, uh, I served with him for about three years 
here at Essabal before he decided to go on, move on. But I, I thought that, the, and I believe that the, his greatest impact on the health of this church was simply to establish lay elders, to establish lay elders of this church, godly men who would be the shepherds of this church, who would shepherd the flock for the long haul. Because when he arrived, when, he, uh, when I got here and was serving alongside, he was already 70 years old. He had already lived a long life. He's, he was up there in years. And so I know our, the church, but when he arrived, the church did not have elders yet. We had pastors and, and there was deacons and uh, as well, but there were no elders. Uh, and so he, by, through his leadership, and directed the church and led with the other, you know, the leadership at that time to establish lay elders. And there was three of those in those days. You know, uh, Victor Kwong was one of them. Uh, there was uh, Don Ng was another uh, one of a, he was He's uh, moved on to another church. Dale Lowe was the, uh, the third. These three men, along with Pastor Sen um, well, and myself, uh, Pastor Chan, were the first group of, they were, well, those three were the first lay elders of this church. And I'm, it's so important to have lay elders because the fact is staff elders, sometimes, sometimes we end up leaving. For some reason, uh, or other. Sometimes we, we don't stay in the ministry. Uh, Pastor Sen did not stay here. He's not, he didn't stay here till the very end of his ministry. Pastors sometimes move on. Uh, but those lay elders, the lay elders of the church, well, they sometimes move on too, but they generally stay for the long haul. We need lay elders. We need shepherds who will be here to make disciples and lead the church in making disciples for the long term. Pastor Sen when he established lay elders, I thought that was a, a, a wise and most impactful thing that he could do for this church. Because he knew that, well, he was 70. He, he should have been retired, but he was still pastoring churches even after that, planting churches after that. But he knew that he would not be here forever. And so he established lay elders who would continue to shepherd the work. Lay, leader, lay elders who would lead in disciple-making. But this isn't, and that's not just what Pastor Sen did, but that's what, Pastor, that's, what, well, that's what Pastor Paul does here in this text. That's what Paul and Barnabas do here. They themselves understand this important principle that they're not always going to be around. They're missionaries, right? They would come every missionary journey once a year, you know, once, once every few years, actually, for Paul and Barnabas. They wouldn't, couldn't always be with them day in, day out. And so there needed to be elders, and they established elders. We notice that in the text that they were elders. There was not just one elder in every church. There was multiple elders, plural elders. There's a plurality of elders. It's very important. No one, and this, no matter what church you should go to, sometimes we think of somebody as being the leader. And, and the tendency is to think of the pastor, this guy, whoever preaches the most, is the leader of the church. I'm not the leader of this church. Christ is the leader of this church. I'm not even the leader among the elders. Though I I will function in that way, we are all equally responsible to shepherd this church as a whole. Individually, we're each responsible for the whole church. As a group, we're responsible for the whole church. No one is more important, less important, because of their, their delegation of responsibility but we need a plurality of leaders. It's a very important principle. This is not just a principle that Paul does, but he's just basically doing what is a principle that was already in the Scriptures. We think about the story of Moses, and when he was leading Israel, the nation was mighty, was huge, and his father-in-law says, what are you doing? Leading, judging, sitting there all day, judging Israel. You need to establish other judges, other godly men who will come on. They will take care of the smaller cases, and they can't figure it out, then they come to you. We see even the work of taking care of the temple was delegated not just to one, one person or even one group of people, but it was delegated among the Levites to different families. This family would take care of this part. Another family would take care of the offerings. Another family would take care of the, the temple, uh, the cleaning and such. But this principle of delegating responsibility would continue in the New Testament as well. Jesus delegated the responsibility to make disciples to the apostles first, as we see in the Great Commission. And they then went out and made disciples of all the nations. But as the church grew, the apostles then began to delegate responsibility to the elders in every church, that they would appoint elders in every church so that they then would then be the primary disciple makers within that local church. 
But as each church grew, the elders in the church then would then delegate responsibility to what the Bible calls uh, deacons and deaconesses of the church, those servants who would come alongside and assist in the disciple-making process. Appointing elders was not just something that Paul does for uh, a pattern for the Galatian churches, but he appoints elders, and according to, he, he does so, uh, this is not only his practice, but this was his instruction to other pastors. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we see Paul instructs young Titus, a pastor on the island of Crete. He tells Titus, who is ministering there on the island, to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. That he needed to also appoint elders, not just like Paul, just as Paul did in the churches that he had evangelized and started. But there's an important thing to note of even as we look at verse 6 through 9. And we see the, the significance of leaders and it's their role in making disciples. Not only are they to be, and how they are to be leaders in making disciples. And that is in Titus 1 6 through 9, we see the qualifications of an elder. But if you notice the list, they are predominantly concerning one's character. We tend to choose leaders not based upon character, in our world, that is. We tend to choose leaders like, we, you know, if we're going to vote for your president or your senator, we tend to choose people based on their ability. We say, well, what have they been able to accomplish here as a senator or as a congressman or as a governor? We want to see what they accomplished in the past. If they've done something in the past, they're capable there, then they must be capable here. And we get that. And that certainly is, for elders, true, too, because they need to be managers of their own household well before they can manage the household of God. Uh, certainly, they must... Uh, they, there's ideas about how they can be teachers. They have to be uh, able teachers, holding fast the word of the faithful, the word of God, so they may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict uh, in verse 9. So there's a definite ability that is a characteristic of elders that we look for, we look to. But the re- majority of these are all character. They're all character issues. Why is this important? Because of this reason. Since making disciples is about making followers of Christ, then a leader whose life exemplifies Christ or exemplifies the character of Christ is much more effective in teaching others to follow Christ, right? Is that if we're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ, we ourselves must be good examples of disciples of Jesus Christ. We must be followers of Christ too, if you don't... uh, sometimes we call this in in uh, in our uh, sometimes we call this ethos. You know, logos, the word is what we preach. Can a man does he have a gifted teacher? Is he does he have pathos? Is he passionate about what he says? We want to know the guy's passionate about. It. He has zeal for what he does. But it's very important element of the one's ministry is or is also this ethos. Does he live out what he preaches and teaches? And, there's this, and so that's why when we appoint leaders, especially elders, but this is true of all leaders, is that we look at character. We should look at character first and foremost. Because, and it's not just any particular character, but we look for Christ-likeness. Because Christ-likeness is what they're going to make, who they're going to make disciples of. We talk about discipling people. You know, the common error that we make when we disciples, we end up discipling people. The natural thing is going to happen is people are going to become like us. Right? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's not the best thing, is it? Because we have sinful nature still. I mean, but Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Even for Paul would say that. You know, when we disciple people, we, that's why we, we often t- say, t- encourage people in a practical, very practical level, is that we want people not to disciple for any people for per one-on-one or a small group for more than one or two years. We say that. We say that. That's kind of a general rule. Is that, you know, is, is that from the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible, okay? You know, but it's practical. Get, be discipled by other people. Because eventually you hang out with me long enough, you're going to learn to practice the same sins I practice. You're just going to learn my, my tendencies, my, my aberrant th- thoughts and practices. That's what's going to happen. And so you need to be discipled by this other guy or that other gal so that you can, we can all be That's why we need the, the discipling of the church, the strengthening of the church. That's, it's very practical. But leaders must be exemplary in the character, must exemplify Christ. Now, having said that, 
none of us perfectly exemplify Christ. But we hope that our leaders will be examples of a, of a, a heart that is after God, a pursuit of Christ like a growing Christ likeness, if you will. Uh, now, this principle then of appointing leaders, because we're going to make disciples, we're, we're trusting that there's going to be uh, there's going to be growing people to disciple, right? There's going to be other disciples, and so as the church grows, as you have more people who believe in Christ, how do we disciple them all? It's impossible for any one man or one group, even a small group, of people to disciple everybody. Even in this church, our elders cannot disciple everyone, and so it is a natural tendency for us as the church grows, that there will be more disciple makers, more people who can lead, more people who can teach, more people who can exemplify Christ, who can impact other people in this body. There's a couple applications of this principle for us today. And the first application principle is this, and this is real practical, these practical things. First of all, as we make disciples, we should always be looking at those who, or as we're serving in this ministry, the main disciples, looked, <coughs> be consciously looking and focus on discipling someone or some two who would replace us, who could replace you. You know, as a, as, you, as, a, as a pastor, hopefully I'm influencing, you know, the people around me, uh, Pastor Alton, uh, Justin, you know, as potential guys, pastor shepherds who could replace me should, you know, I'm no longer here on the scene. Hopefully I'm influencing them. I'm passing on uh, truths that are, lessons that, uh, that Christ has taught me to them so they uh, can then be ready when Christ calls them to step into the role of preaching in the majority of the time as, uh, as happened in, in some, in, at certain occasions of my life. Even, but this happens throughout ministry. Even if you're in children's church, and we have, you know, we, our children's church workers, are everybody who's basically serving children's ministry at this point during our services, you know, bless them, you know, because they don't get to hear this message. They're all on the other side right now teaching our children. At least, yeah, they are. They're not here today. Okay. Yeah, they're all on the side teaching our children. Some of you are in here. I see you sitting. But our children's church workers, you know, when you think about children's church, we should think about that when you teach them, when you're teaching that you're teaching someone who will basically be in your shoes someday. That you teach them so that one day they'll be able to be a children's church teacher as well. And so when you're leading missions and influencing other uh, people, uh, leading those missions groups, that you're, in a sense, thinking about discipling the people in the group about how one day they might take the responsibility of being a missions, uh, leading the missions group. When some of you, uh, as I look back at AV guys back there, you know, I think, well, AV, you just push the buttons. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> but I hope that you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to influence some other, other people who come alongside how to operate that soundboard because it is super complicated. I'd rather study the Bible than learn to operate that AV table, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But to disciple them, some th- sometimes some areas are clear, like, you know, uh, our counselors, for instance. I hear we have this great counseling training. Our counselors, we get that. How would they disciple us to be future counselors? Our Sunday school teachers are teaching people. But what about ministries that are physical in nature, like facilities, like finances, for instance? How are those disciple-making? Well, I believe that those are, ought to be disciple-making ministries as well. If they're a ministry of this church, they ought to be disciple-making. He's like, whoa, how does that happen? I was just talking to our treasurer today. Uh, I was asking him uh, whether he'd like to continue serving. And, I thought to, and he says, well, maybe for one more year. <laughs> but it's not because he doesn't want to serve, but he feels that it'd be wise and important to train up others who can take on the responsibility of managing the, the finances of the church, overseeing the finances of the church. I thought, that's a great idea. That's, that's it. And so I asked him for people whom, and he's willing to train them up. He doesn't know, but he's going to be disciple-making and doing that. He's willing to do it for three months. I'll say over the next year, perhaps, that we should be training up others. It's, you know, I know our money counters are in the back, and they're listening to, to, our, uh, to our message. It's been the same three money counters for the four, three, four money counters for a long time. Uh, they, in due time, are going to, I tr- they're not going to live forever. That's for sure. Uh, they need to train up somebody else <laughs> who will have integrity, will have, understand the, that money is for the service of the Lord. They will be diligent. These are character qualities, true biblical truths. They need to train up people who will have to understand these things so they can also join them 
to not judge when they see who gives what. That's, these are all principles that they need to teach others who will then be able to step in their shoes. You see this type of happens in all sorts of ministries in the church. If I could, you know, take every ministry, I would challenge you. Our ministry leaders, by the way, this is a ministry leaders meeting on January 31st. Be here, 9 a.m. If you, okay, please. Is all ministry leaders must think about this. We must think about how we're discipling others for the future to replace us. And that's number one. That's, that's, I think that fleshes out. Secondly, and more direct application of this principle, is that we need men who will rise up to the, to the calling of God to be elders and shepherds of this church. We need men. A lot of men, I mean, a lot of us are like, uh, God, we're like kind of Moses. Can you find somebody else to do it, you know? Because <laughs> I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. You need somebody else. And that's our sinful human tendency. We just want to run away from responsibility. We'd rather just, you know, sit home, play video games all day. You know, do nothing else, right? Okay, that's, you know, maybe some of you. No responsibility. To take up men, the increasing responsibility that, that we have in life for our spouse, for our children, for our work, for the church. And some of us, God is calling to be elders, striving to be, but be shepherds of wherever God has put you as Sunday school teachers God's calling in your homes. Be shepherds. Be shepherds. And then from this, we trust that God's going to raise up men who, who will desire and aspire to be elders of the church, to, be, to shepherd the flock. But thirdly, I would apply this more broadly to ministry leaders in this church. All our various ministry leaders are, ought to think about being committed to disciple-making. Uh, this church is too large, again, as we said for our elders, to disciple everyone. And so... Devote yourselves to disciple-making. And I just, each year as a church, we nominate new deacons and deaconesses. Our, our, our ministry leaders are essentially our deacons and deaconesses of this church, whether you have the title or not. Essentially, that's what you are. We've delegated other ministries to you that you would help in this church's leadership to make disciples. You're a leader when you're making disciples. And uh, just think about this year. These are, I just threw up the name. These are our 2015 to 16 deacons and deaconesses. These are going to be our ministry leaders for this year. Uh, not all of them, no, but these are all our deacons and deacons, those who are willing to take on the, the public recognition of their responsibility and the authority that they have to exemplify Christ, but then to minister and serve in their respective ministries in disciple-making. Pray for them. Yeah, but I want to just, I throw it up there because if you've been here like 10 years ago, this list would have been a lot shorter list. It would have been like, you know, 10 people or so, uh, maybe less. But now it's like longer, you know. In fact, there's a lot more ministry leaders in this church than we even have on this list. And I want to praise God because as this church grows, we see more and more leaders who will make disciples. Leaders who are people do, and we and though they may not, we all may not all be on the exact same page. We all have our you know our ministries that we're focused on, but we as a big picture, we're going to understand and remind that we are working together as a church for this one purpose: to make disciples. Pray for these individuals, and thus. So let's just conclude. These then are the four activities that Paul does. They and they remind us the priority of making disciples, whether it's evangelizing the lost. Making disciples is the main idea, the main key word. The strengthening of disciples and even appointing leaders. But really we're thinking about appointing leaders, others who will in turn be disciple makers. This is the Great Commission. This is what Christ called us to do. Is this what we're doing? Are we being faithful to do this? Will be the challenge for us this year. What is the purpose, mission of us, the Bible? Disciple making. Our purpose is to glorify God through making disciples of Jesus Christ. So we ask that as a church, but then individually, I ask you, how do you do that in your particular ministry, your kind of relationships within the body of Christ? And however you're doing that, no matter how great or small, as long as you're doing it in some way, I want to praise the Lord for that. We praise God for that. And if you're not yet, we need you. We need you to do the part that God calls you to do in this body.
May you seek out that which the Lord is calling you to do as a church, part of this church body to make disciples. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these truths. And we thank you for Paul's ministry. We thank you for how he was faithful, fearless in preaching the gospel, making disciples, strengthening the disciples, and appointing leaders. We thank you, Father, that he was a disciple maker. Father, we pray that you would cause us to be faithful and fearless to do the same. Lord, sometimes it's easy for us to be unfaithful. It's easy for us to be fearful. We ask that you would show us, Lord, how we might be better, improve in our part of the body, using the gifts and the skills, the talents, the desires of our, that you give us to serve in our part within the body, but also along with the body, this church, in our witness to the world. Father, show us how we might best do that in this coming year. We pray, begin with prayer, and ask that, Lord, you would open doors. Help us be, make disciples faithfully like Paul, evangelizing the lost, but also edifying the saints here. so that your kingdom, your church, might be built. This we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen.